Por el camino del desierto El viento me despeina Su aroma de colita No nada, nada de labios Ella de lo lejos Una luz en tela La idea de Mercán De mí por en la noche Ella estaba la That, of course, is the uh, amazing cover of Hotel California by the Gypsy Kings, one of the most famous flamenco bands in the world, probably the most famous flamenco band. I played that uh, for two reasons. One is that um, my guest today is a flamenco guitarist, and the other is that he sort of has a hotel in California. <clears throat> it wasn't. I didn't know we were going to talk about that. The, the podcast certainly didn't uh, come to life as an ad for his bed and breakfast set up there, but the, <laughs> we end up talking about it. So um, my guest today is Tal Ruspoli. He's one of the most interesting people I know for sure. Also one of the most down-to-earth people I know, which is a real accomplishment when you're an Italian prince who has spent a lot of time in the family castle and um, you know got some early guitar advice from Keith Richards and Spent seven years married to uh, one of the most lovely and famous actresses in Hollywood. You know, and that doesn't even scratch the surface of the stuff that this guy has experienced. Um, so the fact that he's so down to earth, so cool, so humble, so relaxed, so uh, generous with his time and open and, um, you know, just healthy. He's a healthy, cool, quirky, creative, intelligent guy um, who seems to land on his feet. He's in a wonderful relationship now with a fantastic woman who's a star in her own right. Um, I won't say her name because I don't know that she wants her name to be said publicly, but uh, he's He's a great guy and has a really interesting life. And unlike most of the people you hear on this podcast, you could actually go meet him if you want. Uh, in the podcast, we talk about the the bed and breakfast. He's got all these airstreams and campers set up in his backyard in Venice, California, a few blocks from the beach, and he rents them out. So if you're going to L.A. and you'd like to meet Tao, check him out. Uh, I'll tell you what, if I didn't have a whole bunch of family living in L.A. who would probably write me out of the will if I uh, went to to the city and didn't stay with one of them, uh, I'd be staying at his place. Not only for the just the cool vibe, the great location, you get to meet really interesting people. I and mean, Tal's friends are a very uh, special group of people. So anyhow, Tal Ruspoli. A legitimate Italian prince, as you will hear, and uh, and yet one of the most down-to-earth people I know. I was out uh, having a drink with a friend the other night, and we were talking about love. This friend is is a lot younger than me, and um, and I was trying to explain. At one point, I said to her, uh, "I don't think I'll ever fall in love again," and I could see that that made her sad um, to to think of someone who's come to a point in life where you don't think you'll ever fall in love again. Now, of course, you know, part of the reason I don't think I'll ever fall in love again is that I'm very happy with my current uh, partner. So I'm not sort of imagining, uh, you know, that ending and getting into something else. But um, 
But I think it's more than that, uh, honestly. I think that if Casilda and I separated or she died or whatever and I found myself on my own again, I don't imagine that I would fall in love. In fact, I don't think I'm capable of falling in love. And I don't think that that is a sad thing. And I'll tell you why. There's a, a line we quote in the paperback version of Sex at Dawn. I, I hadn't come across this quotation uh, when the hardback came out, but I sort of jammed it into the paperback before they printed that. Uh, it's from Louis de Bernier. I'm not sure if that's pronounced correctly. He's a novelist, wrote a book called Corelli's Mandolin, which I haven't read but intend to. Um, anyway, the 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 quotation is, love is not breathlessness. It's not excitement. It's not the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. That is just being in love, which any of us can convince ourselves we are. Love itself is what is left over when being in love has burned away. I, I think that that's a really powerful quotation. Being in love is something any of us can convince ourselves we are, right? Being in love, what I was trying to explain to my friend the other night is that at this point in my life, I feel like being in love is narcissism because when you're in love, it's like you're riding the horse and you let go of the reins. It's like, oh, This horse is going to take me wherever it wants to go. I have no control, right? That's why we call it falling into love, right? You're not stepping into love. There's no intention. At least that's the intention isn't admitted in the phrases we use. We fall into love. And I've come to the conclusion that the more energy we put into falling in love, the less we have for actually loving. Because I feel like, what we call falling in love because it's narcissistic, but loving is generous and selfless. And the fact that we call it falling in love sort of gives us this convenient excuse to cover all the damage that we do to each other. I read, I saw a paper recently, and I, I can't remember who wrote it or what journal it was in, but the the idea struck struck me and stayed with me. The idea was that love evolved not to get us into relationships. It evolved to get us out of relationships. And I know I've done that in my life. I know that I've used the idea of being in love with someone as a way to get me out of a situation that I didn't have the courage or the strength or the mental focus to get myself out of on my own. Um, and and I, I kind of ironically, I think one of the reasons it was really difficult to leave, I'm thinking of one particular situation where um, I sort of fell in love with a woman at a really bad time when another woman had already sort of quit her job and sold her stuff and was going to come and live with me in Spain. And like two weeks before she 
was scheduled to arrive. I met this or a month be, before I met this woman, and like in the next two weeks, I, I decided I was in love, and it created, as you can imagine, a an incredible shitstorm, and caused horrible pain to the woman who had given up her life in California to come be with me, um, and. And I stayed with the second woman for six years and we're still great friends and she's a permanent part of my life. So I'm not saying that I purely fabricated it out of midair, but but I definitely saw that being in love with the second woman was a way to get me out of the situation with the first woman. The reason I said ironically earlier was that I think one of the things that held me in that first relationship, even though I knew that it was never going to work because she and I had been around the block uh, many times before that. Um, even though I knew it wasn't going to work, I loved that woman. I still love that woman. And so loving her made it really hard for me to move on. But being in love with the second woman gave me the excuse uh, and just... I, it gave me the the the, the get out of jail free card, you know. Like, hey, what can I do? I'm in love, uh, and actually, she accepted that, <laughs> and has never to this day. And we're still in touch. And this was twenty years ago or something. And she's never, never to this day blamed me. As you know, I'm not doing uh, advertisements for the podcast, but if you'd like to support the podcast, please go to fundwhatyoulove.com. And look for the Tangentially Speaking campaign. You can uh, pledge uh, a buck a month, five bucks a month, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel moved to contribute. And um, it'll uh, charge your credit card every month. You can cancel at any time, modify it at any time. And the site is run by a listener of this podcast, uh, Danny. So um, he's it, it seems to be working fine, and it's very cool, and it's a, it's a really nice way Uh, that you can support the podcast, you know, whatever. It's a tip jar, and I really appreciate it. Um, Other than that, let's see. Thanks to Carsey Blanton. Check her out, carseyblanton.com. Her song, Smoke Alarm, uh, is the way I end the podcast every episode. And uh, I guess that's it. I mean, you know, Shore Design t-shirts, mom's sending them out from L.A. That's going well. Everybody, people seem to love the t-shirts. The Civilized to Death shirts are going fast. Everybody, those seem to be the the favorite. Um, So that's cool. I'm working on the book. I'm getting some stuff done. Thank you for your support. Thank you for the emails, uh, you know, kicking me in the ass. It's a really cool, strange, unique situation to be in where your writers are, I mean, where your readers are sending you emails saying, get off your ass, you lazy bastard, get that book done. So, um, I guess I appreciate that. Um, But in any case, thanks for listening to this podcast. It's really nice to have you here. Great to know you're out there. I get wonderful emails uh, every week. Too many to answer, I'm sorry to say, but I read them all. Um, The guy in Iquitos, Peru, who's listening to this, I don't remember your name, but I loved your email. I love to think that there's a guy on the banks of the Amazon, listening to what I'm saying right now, standing here in my dungy little studio in Portland, Oregon. Uh, that's just a mind blower. Somebody in fucking 
Abu Dhabi is downloading the podcast. I think there was one like I saw like 14,000 downloads in um, United Arab Emirates. I have no idea how that's happening. If that's a glitch in the system somewhere or if it's American soldiers over there or I don't know who's who in the United Arab Emirates is listening to this podcast, but apparently there are 14,000 downloads. Um, so to all of you, whether you're in New York, Boston, Moscow, Berlin, I've got a few really nice emails from folks in Berlin. The German edition of Sexodon is coming soon. The Russian edition of Sexodon is coming soon. I just saw the cover art today, which is really beautiful. Um, anyway, super cool to know you're out there. I'm thinking of you. I'm speaking to you right now. Uh, and it's just fucking mind-blowing to know that somehow we can talk to each other instantaneously like this. As you know, if you listen to this podcast, I'm not a big fan of modernity, but I've got to admit that is pretty fucking cool. All right, I'm going to play you into the conversation with Tao with another taste of flamenco. Make sure you go back and listen to my first conversation with Tao. It's in the archives. All the archives have been freed up, as I've mentioned. Um, I think it's an early episode. It's like the third or fourth episode of this podcast. And that opens with him playing. Uh, so you can hear just how good he is. Uh, and, and it gives you some great background for the conversation you're going to hear. I don't think it matters what order, but if you enjoy this conversation, make sure you check out the earlier conversation I had with Tao. All right. This is, uh, about a minute of, uh, a song called Grillos, which means crickets, by Paco Fernandez, the Spanish flamenco guitarist. Thanks for listening. Check you out next week. Uh, the return of Tao. Uh, you did a podcast with me in Vancouver in your your Kinomad, your uh, traveling studio, right? Or, it, or wasn't? Or was it that? It was. It, it was. was. Okay. Right here. We're sitting in, in Tao's backyard in Venice, California, which is absolutely beautiful. Uh, what's your your Instagram account? Tao Ruspoli. Tao Ruspoli. So check him out on on Instagram because he posts a lot of uh, photographs from back here. It, it's this urban sort of oasis it's this beautiful little garden jungle hangout hippie hangout zone in the middle of venice it's fantastic and uh we so i've always had a love of nomadism and kind of nomadic technology my first ever vehicle was a vw bus and then it kind of grew from there i lived in a school bus for two years and i put i put uh video editing 
systems inside there, uh-huh. and we would travel around and uh, mix uh, the things that I found most exciting, which were travel, community, technology, and creativity. Right. And um, what I love about it, I, I think you'll like this. <laughs> I, I was thinking about it from a Freudian point of view, and I thought, why am I so attracted to these buses and vans and RVs? And I, I realized that on the outside, it's phallic. It's like this big, hard, long thing that you go out into the world in. And then on the inside, you have this kind of womb-like mm. comfort and That's coziness. True. So really, it's the best. It's a reconciliation of these disparate natures, like Esther Perel yeah, talks about. you're right. Of like the, the unknown and the mysterious on the one hand, and the, then the known <laughs> and the domestic and the yeah. cozy on the other. And another axis on which the sort of feminine and masculine align, for me, is... Uh, you know, I always think of sort of independence, maybe it's the American Clint Eastwood bullshit, but I think of independence as a masculine trait, you know, the lone gunman, the, you know, I can make it on my own. And when you're in one of those babies and you're cruising through the desert, I mean, I, I, the first time I did this was in my cousin's van and it was a real stripped down version of what we're talking about here. Bed in the back, a cooler, you know, some good tunes, uh, some food and beer and whatever. And um, the thing, the the fuel pump went out in Death Valley, and we sort of like drifted to the side of the highway, and I pulled it down the exit because I thought we were going to spend the night. I don't want to be right on the highway, you know. And uh, But it was, I remember the full moon rising over the mountains in Death Valley where we were stranded, and it was beautiful, man. It was so great because it was like, well, whatever. Who gives a shit? I could survive here for a week, you know, and and be happy as a clam, you know. So there's something about like being able to pull over anywhere and have what you need. Exactly. That I, I I mean, when I was backpacking, that was what I loved about you know hitchhiking and whatever. Like I've got my tent, I've got my food, I've got a Walkman with good tunes. Like I'm I'm set. You so know? I I thought I was just indulging my love of my fetishization of these trailers by buying this old Airstream and putting it in my front yard. And then uh, my girlfriend moved out here from Barcelona. She was, had been working on her PhD, and she came out here to live with me and didn't have a job yet. And I had just heard of this thing called Airbnb, and I said, why don't you try putting one of the trailers, uh, or just the trailer, it was the only right. one at the time, on Airbnb and see what happens. And, and you know, if you manage it, we'll split the money. And you know, within a few weeks, it was the number one destination in Venice out of like 600 listings. Now there's several thousand. Right. It was the, the the first thing that would come up. And every day we'd have a new, great, interesting, fun person coming to stay with us. And I always liked the idea of having a commune and like, you know, having a kind of open living environment. But I understand that that can get complex and political and you inherit people's baggage and and yeah. this is the best of both worlds because people come for just a day or two and yeah. i say we get their luggage instead of their baggage <laughs> <laughs> that's good yeah and, no, go ahead. no and then uh, you know i i i was re- really excited i'm really excited about this idea that technology now uh instead of it's taking us away from our computer screens in an unexpected way. I don't think that people thought that uh, the next step of the internet would be that you have strangers in your home mm. sleeping and, and, and you have these impromptu kind of bed and breakfast slash hotels. Yeah. Uh, and, 
and it's really human. Like people mm. are getting together in a real way, sitting together and having yeah. breakfast and, and staying in each other's spaces. And then, you know, I'm, I'm very optimistic and see the world through rose-colored glasses. So I, I said this to my friend who's uh, a philosophy professor, Mark Rathall, who's in my film Being in the World, and mm. he, he writes about technology and, and its effect on dehumanizing. And, and I said this, like, look, look how much more human it's become. And he said, well, that's one way to look at it. The other way is that everything is commodified, even your, yeah, your most private intimate space. private space. <laughs> yeah. And now anyone can buy the Tao experience <laughs> for one night <laughs> and true. put that in their little <laughs> portfolio of experiences that they've accumulated. <laughs> but anyway, I, I choose not to see it that way. Do they way. get to sleep with you if for an extra price? Is there uh, a, a premium? No, I haven't, haven't put that benefit in yet. Just, just, <laughs> just how Tao is the Tao experience, man. <laughs> So you asked me earlier, we were having lunch before we started this, and you asked me, we were talking about the book I'm working on, and you asked a very valid and um, uncomfortable question for me, which was, uh, Chris, how are you incorporating what you've learned about prehistory into your own life? And I, uh, it's sort of, it's something I think about a lot, and it frustrates me that I can't do it very much. And it occurred to me while we were talking that you're probably the person I know who has incorporated possibly subconscious, you know, not intentionally, not based on study or anything, but you've incorporated so many principles of prehistoric hunter-gatherer life into your life. You talk about nomadism. There you go, right? Like, I follow you on, on Instagram. You're out in the fucking desert or in the mountains every every week, it seems. You're up on the coast. You take your boat out on the water. You're always moving. There are always new people cycling in and out of your life. There's that sort of movement and and richness of your social life uh as i said earlier you know here we are surrounded by plants you've got two places within uh 20 meters where you build fires outside in a city which you know pretty unusual um you're living one outside. of them's in a barrel as you pointed out one's a barrel one's a, a fireplace that sort of goes to nowhere uh you know it's like y- y- you're living outside most of the time uh, you've got animals back here. You've got the rabbits, you know. Uh, like, that's, you're really incorporating a lot of this stuff into your life. So, yeah, the Tao experience, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and, we have an outhouse. Well, <laughs> and you don't have a job, right? You don't have a nine-to-five job. You do lots of different things, which hunter-gatherers all do. You've got to be able to hunt. You've got to be able to fish. You've got to be able to chip arrows and build a shelter. And, you know, like, you're a generalist, uh, so the, yeah, it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of you in those terms until today, but I hadn't you, you really fit into it. <laughs> well, good on you, man. I like you it. rarely bathe. <laughs> You're full of parasites. The, yeah, you got fortunately, the smell already. doesn't come across on the podcast. <laughs> you got worms yet. for sure. <laughs> Haven't digitized smell yet. Yeah, exactly. So uh, before we move on to other issues, uh, how do people, if someone wants the Tao Experience, the, <laughs> sponsored by the Tao Experience? How how would they find your place? Well, if you come, if you go on Airbnb and you just search uh, for Airstream in Venice, uh, or right there you go, or uh, um, canned ham trailer. We have two nineteen one nineteen fifty five and one nineteen sixty five canned ham trailer. Mm. Uh, you'll find it. Also, Tao Ruspoli, T A O R U S P O L I. That's my name. dot com. You can uh, see the links on, uh, on my website for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're if you're a cool person, this is a really cool place to stay. If you're like you know uptight, anal retentive, probably not. Right. 
And you, you don't do like we don't a room get those. Service. Amazing, it's self-selecting. So everybody yeah. uh, who comes here loves it, and we we don't we just don't get people who don't that. And and that's the other great thing about this. Again, very optimistic. My view of uh, technology and what it allows, but uh, uh, you know this kind of anarchic, uh, uh, non-hierarchical uh, system of regulating. Uh, it works much better than the way uh, a government might. I mean, I like government in the sense of helping to take care of people, and I'm not like one of these. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not totally libertarian, but I, in this sort of thing, I think that much better than having a bureaucrat coming here and saying, "Well, you're not. You know, this bathroom doesn't pass this code." People can say it works, and right. uh, we like having a shower in our this kind of indoor outdoor space. And, yeah. And if they don't like it, they, they know about it before coming here. And there's even another level of self-selection in the sense that people who listen to this podcast are not uptight and retentive people. Right? Yeah, except I, you. <laughs> I don't listen to it. No, I'm talking to the listener. Oh, oh him. Yeah, you. <laughs> Whoever you are. <laughs> That's right, the lurking, the lurking asshole. Um, uh, okay, so now what we were, the way we met, uh, and we and by the way, folks, there, Tao was on the podcast oh a year and a half ago, something like that. It was early days, and it was beautiful because it opens with you playing the guitar. It was really nice. Uh, Tao is a flamenco guitarist as well as a filmmaker, and uh, yeah, what else? What, what photographer? A, a photographer? Is my other yeah. Identity? I yeah. guess. That's right. You were gonna you were gonna take my headshot, and then you gave up because you don't photograph unattractive people. No, I, I find Chris <laughs> so attractive uh, that I, but he had just gotten his haircut, and I liked it a little more growing out. So I thought, well, let's let your hair grow a little. Now it's looking perfect. Oh, we can shoot it? after oh, this. Oh, good. We'll shoot after this. Yeah. Um, no, it's yeah. Everyone I see on your Instagram feed is just so beautiful. Like true Italian. You hang out with. You surround yourself with aesthetic beauty. That new, uh, the new van you bought, by the way, that's a BMW, that red one? Yeah, that's a whole other story. We could do a podcast on that, which is, the, it's called the Vixen 21, and it's a great story of this idealistic uh, uh, engineer in the 80s who wanted to build the most fuel-efficient, most amazing RV ever made, and it had to fit in a garage, and it had to get 30 miles a gallon because the oil crisis had just happened, and so he built this... Uh, this BMW turbo diesel RV and nobody wanted it. By the time he finally finished it in 86, he, no one wanted a stick shift, tiny little RV. They were back into these big gas guzzling things. And so they only made 500 of them, but uh-huh. I found one and it's fantastic. I've been, it, yeah. I'm redoing the inside kind of like a boat and we're, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, I've oh, seen the photos of it. It's a lovely design. The way the, the windows placed and the, I mean, the whole thing is just really Yeah, just sexy. Google Vixen 21 and it's a very interesting story of how this guy got this thing made and a beautiful RV. And most, the, the, the unfortunate thing about RV culture, which I love, I love, as we talked about, nomadism and, and this very American frontier mentality of, of going out and hitting the open road with, and this feeling of endless possibility, which is what I love about yeah. living in America versus Europe where I grew up where there's a little bit more closed-minded, and there's a little more, bit more the weight of history that tells people, "Look, why should I bother? Everything's been done before." Whereas here, everything feels new. And uh, like Baudrillard said, like it's the it's the only true primitive society left is America. <laughs> we talk about these <laughs> these primitive tribes being primitive, yeah. but they've been doing it for thousands of years. There's yeah. nothing you know primitive about it. They've developed these lifestyles as you talk about for a long time. Yeah. Whereas America is this very new experiment, yeah. and. Um, 
so wait, we now I've lost my train of thought. We're talking uh, about the oh the culture of you, you said oh, the, oh yeah the, the RV problem. culture. Yeah. The, the problem is that um, a lot of it is just really hideous. Like the RVs that are these giant gas guzzling, uh, yeah. uh, just aesthetically horrible things. And you go to these RV parks. And I remember when I was traveling and I met you, uh, we were traveling, we did 5,000 miles in my RV to, to interview people for my film Monogamish, which is actually ostensibly what we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, so we'll sneak that we'll, in there we'll somehow. Get to it. We'll get to but, it. Uh, so we were traveling 5,000 miles in my 1976 GMC motorhome, and we're staying in this beautiful RV park up in, up in Washington State, and it was by this creek, and I thought, wow, I'd really love to have an RV park one day, but what are we going to do about these ugly monstrosities that are destroying this otherwise beautiful landscape. And I was brainstorming with my team and saying like, could you have an RV park and tell people they have to have a nice looking RV in order to stay there? That would be weird. And maybe you say it has to be over a certain age because things look nicer when they're older. And, and, um, and I didn't know that I could actually do better by just providing the RVs and have people who arrive without, you know, there you go. and stay in, so, in the yeah, RVs that I've Yeah, this is sort picked. of an RV park, isn't it? It's kind it? of an RV park, yeah. Yeah, wow, I didn't think of that, yeah. We've got four of them, so. Uh, yeah, when you're describing, like, an RV park and, like, trying to only have, like, nice RVs, it, it reminded me of the problem, the, the perennial problem with swingers clubs. You know, <laughs> it's like, how do we get the old fat people not to come? Because <laughs> everybody imagines it's going to be all these hot, young honeys and then they get there and it's like wow <laughs> that's wow. and now yeah um okay so uh wait a minute weird oh have you ever read a book called the song lines Mm-mm. you'd really enjoy that it's uh it's the best book i know of about movement and nomadism it's by uh, bruce chatwin oh, okay you yeah, know yeah, yeah i know him yeah really fascinating guy you know his life story no i've, I've read but not off the top of my you read head. in patagonia maybe yeah that was a big i think that won the national book award um well his story is fascinating he uh was like a, a wunderkind uh in the art world he was i think at the age of 21 he was the head chief curator of of East Asian art for Sotheby's of London, you know? So, like, something would come, and he'd have to just look at it and say, oh, it's from the Ming Dynasty, you know, blah, 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 and it's worth blah, blah, blah. So a lot of pressure, a lot of knowledge. And um, he started uh, going blind really young, like in his 20s. And he went to all these eye doctors, and nobody could find the problem. And finally he saw, I think, a neurologist or a psychiatrist who determined that he was suffering from hysterical blindness. Wow. Which is where there's nothing wrong with your eyes, but you, you know, like hysterical pregnancy. Have you ever met someone with a, oh, it's bizarre. Man, a woman who's suffering from hysterical pregnancy, she develops the belly. She, it's, she's convinced she's pregnant. She, her, she stops, ovula, or stops her period, stops, but she's not pregnant. But her wow. body's reacting as if she is. It's like a placebo kind of thing. Right. So anyway, he was suffering from hysterical blindness because, according to this doctor, he was under so much pressure that his body was just shutting down his vision to stop him from dealing with all that pressure. Wow. And the doctor said, you know, the best thing you can do is quit your job and go as far away from here as you can get. So he quit his job and he went to uh, live with um a uh, sort of a tribe of nomads in the Sahara, like Taregs or somebody like that. And uh, so he just fucking went for it. And then he wrote a book about it. 
and it became a, it was quite successful. He found he was a really good writer. So then his writing career took off, and he wrote in Patagonia, and then the song lines, which is ostensibly about the Aborigines in uh, Australia and how their form of worship is walking through the landscape because different aspects of the landscape are different gods. And so you sort of move through the landscape as your worship. And But in that, there are all these meditations on movement and why movement feels so good and why, like, for example, wh- you know, when a baby cries, what do you do? You pick it up and you, you, you sort of gently uh, jostle the baby. That's mimicking the rhythm of walking because babies forever have been strapped to their mothers who were walking, right? Our ancestors. So it's like all this really primitive stuff about movement. It's an interesting book. Anyway, enough enough ranting about the book. So you and I met, as I was starting to say, when you um, were just starting your film, which is now called Monogamish, uh, and uh, with Dan Savage's blessing, which is nice to see. Well, that that was, you know... When I got divorced uh, four years ago now, I was married for almost 10 years, and I've always made films about very personal things. I, I see filmmaking as a kind of therapy, as a way to work through things mm. that I find confusing or interesting or overwhelming. And uh, my, my, One of my first films was about drug addiction in my family. Uh, on both sides of my family, I had terrible issues with heroin addiction and and so i use the camera as a way to open up a space for people to talk about things that they wouldn't otherwise do there was this there was this kind of ideal in the 60s of the cinema verite that if somehow the camera person could disappear uh and and capture life as it actually is that they would get at somehow the truth and and that was kind of discredited i think you know they tried that and and some interesting things came out of it. But I think it was Jean Rouche or one of these film, the European documentary filmmakers in the 70s said, instead of pretending that the, the camera isn't there, maybe we should not only acknowledge it, but also see that it uh, opens people up in a way that maybe they wouldn't otherwise do. Right. And uh, just like now, we're not trying to, we, we probably wouldn't be conversing in this way if we were, we, I mean, we could be t- hitting some of these topics and stuff, but right. we're, we're elaborating them in a way that we wouldn't right. uh, because of this medium, right. right? In this case, the podcast, uh, it could be a film, it could be uh, you know, a piece of journalism, whatever it is. And um, so I, I, I found that picking up a camera and asking questions is a way to kind of work through issues and, and talk to people and dig deeper into a subject that uh, has affected me. So it was you know, drug addiction first, uh, um, and and then this divorce happened, and it was, you know, really traumatic. Worse than I ever even would have uh, expected, because so much of my identity had gotten tied up into this marriage, and so much I'd been, uh, you know, as I later learned more explicitly. But you know, marriage is very much about bringing families together, and I had been a, basically adopted by this family. My own family is was so kind of erratic and and dispersed and and my ex-wife had this very stable wonderful you know uh traditional family in a way even though they're very progressive and and worldly um so so i i just kind of taken for granted this 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 great uh familial feeling and once that was taken out from under me i found myself in a total state of shock and and uh, i i started as is my uh, tendency to pick up the camera and start asking people, well, what what's going on here? Like, what is marriage? 
we did it very spontaneously. We were in love and we're like, let's get married. So what, what, but what, where does this institution come from? And, and uh, what is the relationship between love, sex, monogamy, marriage, uh, uh, child rearing, religion, uh, you know, all of these things that are huge subjects on their own are thrown into this, you know, bag and we call it marriage. And yeah. most people don't even think about all this, you know, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. They, uh, one of the lawyers we ended up talking to. And, and so what was interesting is that we ended up, you know, having to interview people from so many different fields, uh, lawyers, anthropologists, sex therapists, uh, uh, historians, like, I mean, every, every, everybody had something to say about this. And at first I thought like, oh shit, this is going to be like a really kind of wishy-washy subject, relationships and love. Like, you know, I'd made a film about Heidegger and I, I'm interested in kind of... Uh, deep philosophical issues and I thought maybe this isn't like you know I was being a little snobby about it in my head and and then as soon as I I started digging I was like oh no this is a lot of very smart people have a lot of very interesting things to say about this and um, so we went so I, I got in my RV because I also had become kind of homeless again after becoming after getting divorced and I I one of the nice things was kind of this, the, the, there was a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it, I was losing something, but then there was a freedom that came with it. And yeah. so uh, we hit the road and started asking people all these questions. And so the first person I wrote to was Dan Savage, because I'd been reading his column since I was the freshman at Berkeley, and I was a huge fan of his. And so, you know, very kind of optimistically and naively, I just wrote him a, an email saying, I've got this great idea for a documentary and <laughs> I want you to, to star in it and I want to call it monogamish, uh, which is this word that he, wonderful word that he's coined, uh, which I was interested in for a different reason than he is, because he, he has it as a kind of specific uh, relationship model. Mm. Like you can be monogamous or you can be monogamish, which, uh, which is like not quite polyamorous, but you, 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 you're... Uh, trying to be for the most part monogamous, but you're allowing a certain you know flexibility in that. Yeah. But when I started talking to my writing partner, who's this philosophy professor named Mark Rathel, uh, who's also in my film Being in the World, he uh, we started talking about this idea of the word monogamish, and he pointed out that it's there's a more subtle way that this word connects to our culture is that the culture on the whole has this uneasy relationship with monogamy, and that we're not as a as a culture monogamous nor are we totally not monogamous obviously i mean you see people pairing up and you see people getting married and you see this ideal there so uh, the way we framed it is that the culture is monogamish regardless of where each of us places ourselves or defines our relationships mm. right so i really liked this idea of calling it monogamish so um you know no answer from dan savage i say oh well he must be very busy and uh uh Four months later, I've got some funding for the movie. We're really, you know, gone far. We've met you, and we've met uh, Esther Perel, who's an amazing, you know, wrote Mating in Captivity and has that great TED Talk, which has millions of downloads. And uh, so now with a little more credibility, I write to his agent saying, you know, we'd really like to interview Dan Savage for our movie Monogamish. And I got back a kind of cold email saying... Dan Savage is busy and you're going to have to change the name of your movie <laughs> because Dan Savage just, you know, coined this word and it's his. And, 
Anyway, so cut to three years later, finally, thanks in part to you and thanks to like just the continued effort of making this movie, we finally got Dan Savage to sit down for an interview and we got along really well and yeah. now we have his blessing to call the movie Monogamish. Yeah. And he, he looks good in the movie. It looks like he had a cold when you interviewed him, did he? Did no, he like, I don't think so. I no, he seemed a little, uh, con- uh, I almost said constipated. I'm thinking in Spanish. <laughs> Congested. Con- constipado. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh yeah. Um yeah, well the movie looks great. I've seen I don't know how many uh versions of it at this point. You're you're editing it and changing it and and I have to say I really I I know that you did not want to make the movie explicitly about your experience. I wanted you wanted that to be implicit and it's become more explicitly about you. You've been more personally revealing with each version that I've seen which I know must be excruciating on some level. Oh, well, that's one of the reasons it's taken so long because uh, I've had to work some of these things out myself and come to terms with my own uh, perspective on these things. And, and um, you know, and then my, my ex-wife was happened to be a famous actress and so I, I didn't want to ever be seen as exploiting that and yeah, still don't. Sure. And, uh, on the other hand, I, I do think that the way into something like this so that it doesn't become a kind of academic you know lecture right is to say how and especially something like this which is so emotional right it's right. It, uh, so again and and you know i have a uh, uneasy feeling about this uh uh tendency to over uh, uh, indulge one's narcissism to, in this day and age and sure. <laughs> make everything about oneself. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend's dad is a, was teaching creative writing at uh, UC Riverside and every single 20 year old was writing their memoirs. Right. And you're like, okay, yeah. don't you want to look outward a little? So it's, yeah. a, it's a fine balance that I've been trying to achieve between telling my story as a way into this huge subject, which otherwise could seem uh, too big or too academic. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, uh, and, and ask hard questions of myself without putting other people in uh, uh, in a in an awkward or uncomfortable position, again, I, I think as a, you know, a journalist and a documentarian, you have to just tread lightly, and at the same time, be persistent in your search for truth. Yeah, right. It is hard, and I, I do a separate podcast from this one called "Talking Out My Ass," which is like telling my life stories, you know, travel tales and stuff like that. And I'm constantly coming into that conundrum of like, okay, well, this is. This is my life. I'm telling this story, but it involved other people. And in some sense, it's their story, too. And so I change people's names, but I still feel like, you know, if they happen to listen, they know who they are. No question. And even people who knew us or were were in that area at the time could easily figure out who they are. And it's hard to know, like, how much of this is mine? You know, how much of this do I have a right to use without... Yeah. you know other people's no, and we even and, and filmmaking particularly is a very um it's a plane going by a filmmaking is 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 somewhat an aggressive act and that's reflected in the language we use we talk about shooting people right and uh yeah. taking another and take. taking pictures yeah. and 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 i've always been very uh, uh sensitive sensitive to that 
because I, I do think that you're taking something from someone by pointing a camera at them and, and, and it can be somewhat aggressive but at the same time being somewhat aggressive is something you sometimes you have to do in, in order to unearth things so uh, I think our job as filmmakers is to uh, negotiate that tension as carefully as we can yeah and and then you know filmmaking is it's funny that going back to the hunter-gatherer conversation uh, uh, filmmaking has been so uh, patriarchal and so dominated by men uh, you know still in Hollywood today it's this kind of dictatorship of these giant male egos and the one uh, the one role in the filmmaking process that has been open to women from the beginning is editing and it's the also the most essential because every other part of filmmaking is borrowing from other media like you know you have a kind of when you're shooting something it's almost like theater or you're telling a story like you do in a novel but editing is unique to filmmaking right so women have 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 been allowed this role and there is this kind of hunter-gatherer thing of the man going out and shooting ah, and, and bringing prepares. back and preparing and it, right? Yeah. And cooking it. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Anyway, that's just a, a little kind of uh, metaphor, metaphorical aside there. Um, but so editing is a huge part of the filmmaking process, a part that, that a lot of the general public doesn't spend much time thinking about. They're not glamorized again. Part of this male ego and 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 uh, uh, inability to recognize the importance of of roles that aren't out there in this in this more obvious way. Uh, and 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 so so that's where most of the filmmaking process is happening. You're sitting yeah. there with this material that you've gathered. It's like paints that then you now have to put on the canvas. Right. And uh, and and you work through it slowly, slowly. And then uh, the two there's a hundred different ways to cut the same material yeah. and give a very different yeah. uh, tone and right. and message with it. So I've been struggling with that for a while, longer on this movie than 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 any other that I've made. But that's because again, it's a very big subject. It affects. Everyone, that's been very clear as I've gone forward, that there's nobody who's untouched by these issues, whether it's uh, as a child who had parents split up and, and, uh, or however your family was structured. But, you know, one of, I'm not totally, uh, I'm not pretending to make something totally objective here I'm, I, I think there is this like I said there's a subjective point of view that there is something broken about the way things are set up now and we easily look back on other eras and recognize that there were things wrong there were things wrong with the way they had things set up we can look back at the 1950s and look down our noses and say oh mm. these people are uh, yeah we're so backward and so repressed and, and then, you know, that's going back 50 years, but let's go back, you know, a hundred years or 200 years. And we can clearly see that there's, there were improvements made, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously some also, uh, things got worse, but, uh, I think there's a tendency to think that the way things are today is the right way. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and, and you see it a lot in the marriage debate, traditional marriage. I don't know how people can say that with a straight face, you know, like they, they can reject yeah. uh, gay marriage because they say that we're for traditional marriage. What's next? Polygamy? 
Well, look at the Bible. It's like all polygamy. That is traditional marriage. <laughs> that is traditional marriage. Yeah. So the people are very the people pick and choose what is natural, what is right, and it's very, very, very historically contingent. Yeah. So what my goal is not to be prescriptive in the film, but it's to open up a conversation about uh, why are things the way they are. And do they have to be this yeah. way? There's this great quote from uh, George Bernard Shaw who said, uh, patriotism is, is simply your conviction that the country you were born in is the best because you happen to have been born in it. Yeah. Right? And I feel that we do that same thing with our historical era. You know, it's like the present is the best. Why? Because I was born here. Yeah. That's where I am, you know. So this is my normal from which I judge everything else. Yeah. And as you know, like a lot of what I'm trying to do in, in Sex of Dawn and in the book I'm working on now is is see this current era for what it is to the extent that it's possible, you know, yeah. on objective terms. And it's it's hard, as you say, because you have to first convince people that that's even a legitimate question. Because most people just don't see it, you know. Yeah. It's like, no, this is, this is the best because this is me. This is my life. I mean, I'm I'm deeply progressive in the sense that I do think that we, that life gets better every day, and that that we that we the culture is working things out, um, but that requires. Uh, letting go of things and it does require as you say looking back and saying well what can we learn about the fact right. that this isn't the only way to do things but of course i'm not for uh abandoning the lessons of what's been what we've worked out you know i mean i think that obviously there's uh, women are in a much better place now i mean we probably disagree on some of this but well, they're in a, um, but see it depends what you compare it to if you compare it to hunter gatherers they're not if you compare it to 500 years ago, 1,000, 2,000, sure. And that's part of the trick that people, you know, people's imagination at best goes back to the ancient Greeks, you know, yeah. or the Egyptians. So it's, 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 you know, things are better or worse. Yes, have we doubled the human lifespan? Yes, since the medieval period, we have. Since the hunter-gatherer period, no. Right. You know, like... So the, yeah, it's it's really also, hard to you know it's it's paradoxical, but uh, I think I think there's a, a there's an interesting reason why this happens is that technology is, as Terence McKenna said, is like a boundary dissolving mechanism, right? And mm. so we see that you know the internet at its best like dissolves boundaries, allows us to you know traverse great distances with great ease and everything. Yeah. And so it's natural, I think, that that boundary dissolution should make a time when we were more boundaryless resonate more for oh, us. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I think that we have this, this, iron, this kind of paradox of like the more technologized we get, the more uh, these primitive ways of existing with each other and with the world might make more sense. Than yeah, they, than and become more possible, as you were saying earlier, with the Airbnb thing and, you know, Uber and there, there's all this kind of sharing economy that's yeah. become possible with the internet. I think you don't want to romanticize it too much, of course, because you know, there are, there are real problems with the fact that, you know, uh, a company like Instagram, which used to, which is the size of a company which 50 years ago would have hired you know, 25,000 people mm, now yeah. has 18 employees right. for that same money is concentrated in these new, and everyone wants to like say, Oh, aren't these 
you know, these billionaires are just lucky, wonderful people, and we don't see the, them for what they are, which is probably like the robber barons of our age. You know, like we'll look back on on Zuckerberg and these guys and see them the same as way as now we look at Rockefeller, and uh, they are. That, their money's coming from somewhere. You, <laughs> you know, yeah. and we're giving it to them very gladly. But it, probably they're on the uh, you know on the political economic basis. There is going to have to be a, a, we're going to have to face this fact that this that wealth is being concentrated in this really unequal way. But at the same time, we're getting great benefit from it. But we just want to make sure that those benefits, I think, are uh, you know spread around to as many people as possible. I hope. Now, this is coming from a guy who's in a family that can trace its lineage back to what the twelve hundreds, the year eight hundred, the year eight hundred. <laughs> so I, I wanted. I mean, I, I don't want to be intrusive at all. And uh, no, as much you know. as you want. Um, but I really like the. The fact that the film has, with each iteration, has skewed more into your personal story because it's so fucking interesting, you know? I mean, briefly, you're from a family that can trace its lineage back to 800. One of your relatives, I don't remember which, I love the parts in the film where your, I think it's your cousin, is sort of leading you around, like explaining, well, in this room, this is where, you know, our great, 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 great. the family castle, yeah. And like killed her her three husbands and, you know, (laughs) this crazy shit because she was a niece of the Pope and so she could do whatever the fuck she wanted. And, you know, and there are these gardens and there's this whole sort of European fairy tale quality to it. And then you're married to this American movie star. She wasn't, was she famous when you married? No. So you sort of were there for her, you know, blasting into orbit. Um, are you comfortable saying or saying who we're talking about? Or you? Yeah, understand? whatever. I mean, I don't want to make it about that. But No, but I mean, what I'm saying is your experience is in some ways so idealized. You know, from a normal, average person's perspective, Italian prince married to a fucking movie star, right? Like, how can it get better than that? You know, you're good looking, she's good looking. You're both brilliant. You're both creative. You, you both have absolutely everything. And your marriage didn't work out for whatever reason. So that's like, I mean, it's like Zeus and Hera or something. Like, you know, if they can't get their shit together, what hope is there for the rest of us? Holy shit. <laughs> So anyway, I like that. Going to the family history part of it, because I did go back, you know, to my family history. And and again, people talk about traditional, you know, there is this religious side of marriage, obviously, and 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 this political side of, you know, people who are religious, who are wanting to defend marriage as this sacred institution. And obviously, I have I my family got its title from the pope. And uh, it was known as the papal aristocracy. They, 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 um, uh, there were certain families that provided military and financial support to the Vatican, and mm. in exchange, they would get titles and feudal, you know, lands and everything. So they were the and, Zuckerbergs of eight hundred, <laughs> right? And 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 so I think that I I have a unique I'm in a unique position to see up close that while there's that there's this. Uh, coexistence of something that's called sacred, and it is, and and we can talk about that also as like what does it mean to be sacred, and what does it mean to have a public ritual that that is acknowledged by the community, and all of this kind of stuff. But that these religious institutions are born out of a a, 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 
a quest for power and domination. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 the history of marriage is one of control, right? It's one of controlling women, mm -hmm. uh, women's sexuality particularly, as I learned so much from your book, uh, that women, uh, you know, as private property comes uh, into the human conversation and, and, and human practices, we need to, we need to make men start to make, want to make sure that their property is being passed on to their own children and therefore they need to control who their women are sleeping with. And, and so a lot of uh, religion... I have, you know, this is a very complex, big subject, and we could spend a lot of time talking about it. And I, I do think there is something real about the, the 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 longing for something that's transcendent, and I do think that that's there even in institutional religion. And yeah. I think that people on the left often d don't want to acknowledge that, right, right? right? The idea that there could be something. Uh, more profound in a, a practice that goes back stretches behind, beyond your lifespan that involves your community and isn't just uh, you alone with your own spiritual you know whatever the Smugness. fuck you want to do yeah and and just you know <laughs> yeah. go eat some mushrooms and sit in the forest by yourself which is also you know I'm all for but I'm just saying like yeah. there's the, there's ritual there's ritual is very potent but that, yeah. but it's just an uneasy marriage <laughs> not to pun intended of these very disparate uh, uh, ideas and practices mm. so you have love and passion and commitment and you have domination and control and yeah. you have pragmatic concerns of of pooling together resources and like stephanie stephanie kuntz who's one of the um world's authorities on the history of marriage she's one of the interviews uh, one of our main interview subjects in the film and she explains that marriage was traditionally very little about the man and the woman it was about the two families coming together right. and again i don't think that should be seen as a bad thing right. like that's great maybe when you when you start to have just two people who are on their own just making this decision based on uh, 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 f flighty emotions, right. maybe that makes something much less uh, uh, stable. And you see a lot a higher um, marriage satisfaction in India. And arranged, arranged marriages. Marriage. Yeah, exactly. Than you do in this. So I actually have an yeah. uncle who's very traditional. He's 88 years old. My father's younger brother. Yeah, he's in the film, right? He's in yeah, the film. Yeah. And, and he said, um, I said, what do you, being such a, real traditionalist not what today people call traditional but going back to like what we're talking about arranged marriages and everything i said what do you think um about the relationship between love and marriage and he said i think people should learn to love the person their parents say they should marry <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah. um which aligns with what's that old line uh that men Men learn to love the women they're attracted to, and women learn to be attracted to the men they love. Yeah, I don't know if we can draw such a neat line there, but well, it, especially in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, it, it lines up. Uh, is it, while we're talking about your your uncle and your family, I for some I've got this idea in my head that your father hung out with Fellini. Yeah, and was he the? I I haven't seen the Dolce Vita in thirty years or something. But was your father a model for one of the characters? Yeah, well, the, my father like was one of the people who started the Dolce Vita, the real Dolce Vita, not the movie. I mean, uh, Fellini okay. was actually a kind of provincial kid from you know uh, 
a little town so in what northern is Italy. The real, Dolce Vita? the real Dolce Vita is like the Roaring Twenties. After ah. a time of war, when there's this exuberance of life and this uh, sense of new possibilities, but at the same time, a sense that it could end any minute. So I think that's what happened in the twenties in the United States with you know uh, the jazz the, age, yeah, yeah, and 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 Fitzgerald and all of yeah. this type of stuff. It was similar in Italy. Italy had had lost the war and and uh, you know was kind of destitute. And then my father was one of a handful of people. He he went to Brazil. His father had married, and as you learn in the movie, uh, for financial reasons, uh, the, the the Italian aristocrats had a lot of property, but uh, taxes and changes of social structures had made yeah. it so that they had no money. Right. So what what you had to do was marry aristocrats to uh, wealthy to money right. and the, the the money family get to get to like inherit all this history and the and then the aristocrats get to keep their right. castles up it's a little the longer. The Downton Abbey phenomenon. Exactly. Same thing, yeah. So 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 uh, my grandfather my my great grandfather my my father's maternal grandmother um Sorry, my father's maternal grandfather. Sorry, this is a little, little complicated, but uh, was a poor Neapolitan who went to Brazil and became the richest man in Brazil when he died in 1937. He was the richest man in Brazil. And he in had... Th- 1937. 1937. And he, moved, he went to Brazil in the late 1800s right. on a boat with like, you know, fourth class, uh, with nothing. He was yeah. just a farmer from outside of Naples. And he, he got a job working on a farm in, in Brazil and he partnered up with the owner of the farm and eventually got another farm, another farm. And he was like importing all the agri- all the grain and for all of Brazil. And he had multiple companies. And anyway, he ended up having 13 kids. And his once you've got all that money, what can you do is marry your kids to Italian aristocrats. And so he, with lawyers and everything, they found 13 aristocratic families. And they married off, he married off each of these kids to, to, to these, these different families. And so my father, uh, his mother, who was this heiress, died when he was nine years old. World War II was going on. And he, uh, after the war ended, he goes to Brazil and inherits this huge fortune and comes back to Italy with this uh, dead mother, a father who was steeped in militarism, was like, had, had fought in both world wars and was just part of this very fascist, literally fascist, uh, you know, way of looking at the world and my father wanted nothing to do with it and he was a rebel from the beginning and so he basically started this lifestyle which was just decadent and and fun and 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 extremely wasteful on one level because he squandered this huge brazilian you know his 13th of the fortune mm. uh he managed to to spend it all and uh but having a great time doing it and what he was living in the 1950s was then later called la dolce vita right lots of yachts and stars and champagne and exactly yeah, and yeah. great friends and very you know true creativity too as far as like he you know his best friend was Jean Cocteau and Salvador Dali and Picasso and Fellini and Orson uh-huh. Welles and I mean his his friends were like the, some of the most interesting people yeah. of the time yeah. and and he was a true original he was he wasn't like a superficial you know the way you know he was called a playboy which now unfortunately is associated with you know Hugh Hefner and that magazine whereas that is actually destroyed the idea of the Playboy by popularizing it and making it like commodified. Yeah. 
Yeah, you ever read The Unbearable Lightness of Being? Yeah. Yeah, I love that book. Um, But there's a, you just reminded me of the whole Playboy thing. There's a a line in there where he says, he says there are two kinds of womanizer, the romantic and the epic. The romantic is the man who is always looking for the perfect woman and so is always disappointed because he thinks he's found her and then he realizes she's not the perfect woman. The epic is the man who is fascinated by women and so he's never disappointed and every woman is a new country to explore a new world to to you know to understand and um i always thought about that and the one thing that made me uncomfortable about that was the word womanizer because it's so you know yeah objectifying yeah and later i spoke to a friend i think he wrote that book in in french and a friend of mine does translations and she said um, she said, no, I read the original manuscript, and that's a bad translation. It, it doesn't translate to womanizer. It translates to lover of women. Yeah, that's much better. Isn't that, you know, just that one twist in the word can really... No, and my father was very much that. And, and you know, even though he had this reputation as, uh, you know, playboy and everything, you know, I, I, you know my, my mom was with him for 10 years she left him, you know, he was devastated. So it wasn't like... And your mom, her story is amazing, too, which I didn't know until I saw the film. You know, yeah, her so, father and the spaghetti westerns. And yeah, the so all of, this, all of this is, t- is explored yeah, in the film. Right. But the, you got to yeah. see the film. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my, my mother's father was, uh, was an, a, an actor who went to Italy. He was American, originally Austrian, but he, he, he went to Italy and became a spaghetti western star. And he yeah. acted in over almost 200 films. Uh, which now are kind of making a comeback. It's funny, friends of mine who are film aficionados are suddenly saying, hey, I saw your grandfather in this great old spaghetti western and stuff and like (laughs) some of the films that I have never even seen. And uh, so he went to Italy and he was very much... He was a great thinker also and a great intellectual and, and, you know, he had gone to Colombia and uh, was always, you know, a writer and a reader and in addition to his uh, his acting. And he, uh, he was you know, very much of that age of wanting to question everything that had been handed to them, especially coming out of this 50s, very repressive, uh, stultifying life that that uh, that he had lived in in America in the 50s. Yeah. And so he went and he started the commune and he just completely rejected monogamy and, and, and that the institutions of... Well, he didn't reject marriage because he ended up getting married a few times, but... Which is often the case, interestingly enough. People yeah. we do long for for marriage, and again, I think it has something to do with this public recognition of something that otherwise is only private, maybe. Yeah, and also I think stability. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, again, yeah. hearkening back to hunter gatherers, there's a lot of movement, a lot of uh, sort of fluidity, but you knew the same people for a lifetime. Yeah, you know, you could trust them. You knew them. They knew you. There's that sense of being included in a, you, know, you you were talking earlier about religion, about you know being connected to something that's bigger than you, that'll outlive you, that was there before you. I think that again harkens back to the hunter gatherer experience. You know, you're of this group, this tribe, this yeah. whatever, and and that tribe will be there after you're gone. It was there before you. It'll protect you. You know, we long for that now because we've got friends. You know, I consider you a friend, but. You know, I'm not going to call you if I need a ride to the airport. I don't even live in the same state as you. You know, right. I mean, it, it it's weird how our 
our affection now is often with people that we don't really spend that much time with. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's strange that sort of fracturing of everything. So, but there's, but there's this like so. So it's interesting though that after we were talking about this before we started rolling the tape, but uh, it, in the '60s there was this total rejection of. Coming out of the 50s, it seemed like maybe there's nothing worthwhile here. And so people who were kind of radical were saying, you know, we talked about Leary before, who in 1965 was getting up and giving speeches, which today seem quite shocking to hear people say, you know, everyone should quit their jobs. Everyone should uh, drop out of school. Yeah. Every, no one over 40 should be allowed to vote. Uh, everyone should, you know, just go into a state of psychedelic, you know, uh, navel gazing and, and only find, you know, salvation and redemption and enlightenment, you know, through just a re-communion with nature. Because there was this need to kind of... The, the, this pendulum had to swing hard the other way, right? Yeah. So you see that with psychedelics, for example. Like they were just like it, it was a huge threat to the system because they, they wanted to throw out everything, right? And I could see how people might be freaked out about that, especially people who had some stakes in the system, right? Anyone who owns property or has built something over generations, right? So, so then there was this total clamping down on that, and then there was this idea that like you know. Uh, there was nothing to be gained from yeah. the, the psychedelics, and there was the hippies. They that they they were completely dismissed and free love. Everyone's like that didn't work. Uh, we know that now. Yeah. But now suddenly enough time has passed, and the '60s are far enough away that, and there's a new generation of people saying, "Wait a second, maybe there was something, and maybe we can find." Uh, a more nuanced way of looking at these things. Yeah, I and agree. I think that's what you see in monogamy. It's what you yeah. see in marriage. It's what you see in Marijuana psychedelics. Laws. It's what you can see in yeah. all of these things. Is We don't need to completely threaten the system to question it and maybe push it along in a, in a way that is a little bit more... Uh, uh, has a... more in keeping with... I don't want to say our nature... Because I don't think that's something fixed, but I think that it's more in keeping with our the, the way we coexist with each other and with the world. Yeah. And we're back. We just had uh, we were talking about a sense of community. There, there are people. I, I, I'm never clear who lives here and who doesn't. Neither they, am I. <laughs> there are always people coming and going, uh, and airplanes flying over. So um, I, I think at this point, anyone who's listened to this podcast is definitely going to see your film if they can. Is it going to be streaming as well as playing in festivals? Or would, do you know how the distribution's working? Yeah, I mean, now it's, you know, it, with the whole world is constantly changing of distribution. But, you know, it's been our goal with Mangusta Productions, which is the company that, I, that produces my films, to hold on to control in a way that wasn't possible before. Right. Um, so you know there'll be some sales to TV and internationally, and but uh, you know now if things live everywhere, they'll hopefully be on iTunes, Netflix, right. you know theatrical release in New York and LA maybe, and and you know b- small town screenings, festivals like it, it it'll be the whole gamut. And yeah. uh, you know we have a Facebook book page for Monogamish, which we're constantly updating, and we have uh, Monogamish dot us. Dot .us is the is the website and 
uh, you'll be able to find out Good. as things come as so it comes people to your can town. go and register an email or like the page on Facebook exactly. and they'll they'll get the news where to see it and how to see it and all that absolutely yeah okay excellent uh, I want something you mentioned earlier I just wanted to touch on you know you and I strangely I mean our lives are so different and you know in so many different ways but there are a lot of places that are important to both of us in a strange way. We determined earlier that your mother lives in this little village in the south of Spain where Cassie and I spent about two weeks and were looking at property and seriously thinking of moving there, which is really strange because it's a tiny little, beautiful little village. I love, there's a fountain in the central square, Arcos de la Frontera. Do you remember that fountain? Has she lived there a long time? Or is yeah, she's been there for over over 10 years. Oh, I went nice. to Spain originally because I fell in love with flamenco. Yeah. Um, in a funny unexpected way my father was you know we were talking about all my father's amazing friends and one of his good friends was was keith richards and when i was 15 my dad said oh the rolling stones are in town we'd go visit keith in the hotel and i just started playing electric guitar and i was uh. so excited i mean this is like telling someone you're gonna go meet god right <laughs> and uh so we show up at this the Excelsior Hotel in Rome and he's got a whole floor to himself and and he comes out wearing this like knit Rasta like like vest and he's got a big joint in one hand and a Jack Daniels and ginger ale which was his drink on, in the other and he greets my dad and we come in and he's got his dad hanging out who was like this 80 year old man with a big white beard and this just kind of people milling about and my dad says you know my son's learning to play the guitar and uh, and uh, oh, and Keith Richards of all people reaches in the corner and and has a flamenco guitar and he says, "You know, young man, if you want to learn to play the guitar, you should learn to play flamenco because if you can play flamenco, you can play anything." Really? And he strums a few flamenco chords and plays a little bit of flamenco. I mean, unbeknownst to most people, he's actually a very accomplished musician in other fields: jazz, flamenco, all this. So this stayed with me, and then I went to, uh, when I started at Berkeley, my first uh, semester there, I went to see Paco de Lucia, who's the greatest guitar player who ever lived, I think, in any yeah. style. And uh, in the program was a, was a uh, little advertisement for a local guy teaching flamenco. And I thought, I remembered Keith's words, and I said, well, I'm going to try this. And so I, I, I took a lesson thinking I'm just going to see what this is like and completely fell in love with the music, the culture, everything about it. And, and so my third year at Berkeley, I, I, I took a semester off and went and lived in the south of Spain and started studying with you know, the great gypsy practitioners of flamenco, guitar and dance and song and really like finding this uh, an amazing world to dwell in as far as not just the sound of the music but the philosophy of life and the the approach to creativity and the, you know uh, there was just so much there and 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 then my mom came to visit me and she fell in love with it too and she's been there ever since <laughs> really yeah. that's why she's there and she, yeah there was another story of a husband who had gone to prison which is another story but <laughs> do you want to tell it uh, yeah maybe i should tell this story i've always thought this story would make a, a good like vanity fair article or something it's uh, and since we're on the topic of marriage, my mother and father never got married to each other. Uh, they spent 10 years together, but getting divorced in Italy at the, at the time, and even still today, is, was quite a difficult task because of the influence of the church and everything. And, and so my father was still married to my older brother's mother, and 
they had a kind of open relationship which had turned into kind of living separate lives and his my father's mother my my older brother's mother my father's wife lived upstairs and uh with her new boyfriend and they were raising you know their firstborn son and then my dad meets my mom and uh she moves in and and they went to Thailand where I was born in 1975 and and then they moved back to Rome and and had my little brother and they spent 10 years together but uh the whole time his wife was living upstairs and uh and, and with her new boyfriend and her new, uh, her new life but there was you know there's a there's a newspaper article that you see in the in the film yeah, I remember that, that yeah. says here is prince dado ruspoli with his wife his lover his son and his lover pregnant <laughs> uh, so yeah um, traditional family value <laughs> yeah. and um no, and it, you know, and it worked quite well. And uh, you know, obviously, it, you bring that kind of complication, and you're going to have complication. <laughs> but uh, but it, but but it, for what it, you know, for what it's worth, it, it was it was an interesting and cohesive family dynamic. But um, but they never got married, and my mom moved with my little brother and me to the United States when we were I was eight years old, and uh, we started living this very normal LA life, you know, with our mom who didn't have much money we lived in a little guest house and and we had this very kind of normal uh, all-american kid life and and uh and then we'd spend the summers with our dad in the family castle and with his whole extravagant life uh then several years later my father married again when he was 70 quit smoking opium for the first time in 45 years and started a new life, got married and had two children. <laughs> when he was 70, he had uh, my sister Melusine. And when he was 73, he had uh, uh, my little brother, Theodore, who's now 16 years old. I'm 39. And uh, yeah, and I was got a kick out of the fact that my brother, Theodore, who is 17, has a grandfather who was born in the 1800s. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Spanning generations. <laughs> yeah, man. And um, so, and then my mom, when uh, when I was in college, meets this Italian, this extravagant, funny kind of Roberto Benigni esque uh, character, uh, who was an incredible uh, uh, classical guitarist, an incredible chef, and just a really funny, charming guy. And I come home from from Berkeley, and I'm thinking, this is great, you know, like to be reconnected with my Italian roots. There's a guy who we're speaking Italian at home. We're eating these incredible meals, and mm. and uh, it's just, I'm you know, my mom seems madly in love, and and it all seems great. And and this guy is saying all the time that uh, you know he used to be an art dealer and he used to have a Rolls Royce and he used to have all this stuff and his apartment in Paris and all of this. Meanwhile, we'd go out and uh, you know he'd ask me for a dollar to buy the newspaper. And I'm like, okay, well, he's full of shit, but I like him anyway. He's simpatico, as we say. Right? Yeah. And um, anyway, so uh, he, he moves in. They get married in... In his, he was always in his bathrobe, and they get married in his in his bathrobe with rings made out of tin foil, and and just at the house they call somebody up that comes up and marries them, and I think he's well, literally wearing a bathrobe. Yeah, he's literally in his, which he was always just hanging out in his bathrobe, and uh, <laughs> and this is my mom. I'm 21 years old, and my mom's getting married for the first time, and I'm kind of excited about it because I really like this guy. Were you the you know? best man. No. I mean, we just, you know, it was just a guy came up with some forms and they put these, uh, yeah. these tinfoil rings on each other and, and, 
and and I'm I'm happy seeing my mom married for the first time and yeah. seemingly very in love. And this guy is uh, uh, tells a lot of seemingly tall tales, but I don't care because uh, he but cooks he is well a good and he's cook and he is a good guitarist, a great guitarist. I'm learning, so we're playing yeah. guitar together. We're speaking Italian. He's telling yeah. jokes. I love jokes and everything. So so I'm really happy. And and I go back to Berkeley and I come back um, six months later and he says I've met this uh, oil man in Texas and uh, we're going into art dealing together and he's putting in the capital and I'm going to buy paintings and and uh, and we're going to buy and sell paintings together and suddenly all this money starts pouring in he starts like uh, he starts uh, um, like remodeling our house and then putting like $50,000 worth of roses in the garden and putting a new swimming pool and all of this stuff and this is this house that our uh, you know uh, my my dad had sold the last asset that belonged to our family was the, you know this that he had was our family castle and he sold it to his young brother to get us a little house in LA and for us to go to college mm. so um, so meanwhile this crazy Italian guy is like remodeling our house and buying my mom elaborate you know like fancy gifts and everything and and uh, and buying and selling paintings and we have like paintings hanging on the wall by uh, 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 it was like, you know, Boteros and, and Magritte's and like uh, all these amazing, like, you know, paintings worth hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And uh, it's all happening very fast. And it's a little scary. And uh, but I'm thinking, OK, you know, I'm 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 off at school studying philosophy. It's it's uh, it's fine. And uh, anyway, one day he goes to Spain and he gets stopped by Interpol and thrown into prison and it turns out that he's basically been dealing in uh, fraudulent paintings uh-huh. and uh, and creating fake provenances for these paintings and everything. And and uh, and so my mom goes to Spain to try and get him out of prison in Malaga. And uh, as she goes there, he's he's there for nine months awaiting extradition. And as he's in prison, all of the shenanigans he's been doing start to unravel in my hands as a 22-year-old kid trying to defend uh, this house from, like, lawsuits coming in left and right from people that this guy had ripped off. And because they were married, suddenly all of his shenanigans became my mom's shenanigans as well. All of his debts became her debts, and we ended up losing our house. And, um, oh, no. and, uh, and, and this is how I ended up living in the school bus for, like, two years. And, really? and I then was living in this school bus traveling around totally homeless and that's when i met my you know who, the girl who became my wife we became we we married we eloped inside the in the back of the school bus was that the the school bus that was uh, a studio you had like yeah. a film traveling yeah. film studio sort yeah, of yeah yeah, yeah yeah wow that's amazing <laughs> I mean, terrible, but amazing. I, or maybe not. I don't know. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, you can't who say knows? terrible. You know, there's that great yeah. Taoist. You know, the Taoist story of the guy who goes to the Taoist master and he says, uh, "This, uh, you know, uh, my 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 horse has run away, and it's the only thing of value I ever had." And the Taoist master says, "Who says that it's terrible?" And that's all he says. And the guy goes away frustrated, saying, who is this wise man? He didn't help me at all. And the next day he comes back. He says, you were right. That's amazing. The horse has come back with 100 horses more beautiful than he was. And now I have these 100 wild horses. It's fantastic. 
And the wise man says, who says it's fantastic? <laughs> yeah. And the guy's like, oh, whatever. Don't rain on my parade. <laughs> and he, he runs off. And then the next day he comes back and he says, you were right. It's terrible. My son was trying to tame one of these wild horses and he broke his leg. And it's a disaster. And he says, who says it's a disaster? <laughs> and the guy goes off. And then the, he comes back. He says, it's great because my, the war started and, and, and my son now doesn't have to go because his leg is broken. And, you know, it goes on yeah. like this forever. Yeah. And I often think of that story when I think about losing my house because you know I, I ended up starting my filmmaking career and you know meeting this girl and yeah. getting married in the bus and that, like yeah. all of this stuff you know yeah. and divorce the same thing I got divorced I thought it was the worst thing that ever happened to me and then you know then I met a, another amazing person that I'm now living with and sharing my life with and I'm madly in love and it's yeah. been four years and so life it's true life comes in cycles and there's only so much control that we can uh, impose on that if you want to make God laugh tell him your plans right exactly right and the reason I've been living in Barcelona for 20 some years is that I got robbed my first night there really yeah <laughs> I wasn't I was on my way to Sevilla I was had no plans to ever live in Barcelona. I was just stopping in to see it for a few days. And first night, I'm on the Ramblas, and some guy taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, do you know where the statue of uh, Christopher Columbus is? And it was like the only thing I knew was that it was at the base of the Ramblas, right? Mm -hmm. So I point down there. Oh, thanks. Yeah. And while I'm pointing, his partner's stealing my bag that was on my other shoulder, right? And uh, or sitting next to me on this bench. It took me a few minutes. I didn't even notice it was gone, but that was my passport and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I had to get, uh, I had to wait for the new passport. And while I was waiting, someone heard my sad, sad story and was like, hey, dude, you can, I got a spare room. Why don't you stay at my place? And by the way, my friend has an English school. You want to, you know, make some money? They're looking for a teacher. And, oh, the, you know, and my neighbor's this hot Spanish woman. And she, you know, oh, hey, she's great. And the next thing you know, I'm like, I kind of like it here. I think I'll hang out for a while. And you stayed 20 years. <laughs> 20 years, Amazing. yeah. Still have a place there. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, I hear you. You never, you never know what's good luck, bad luck, whatever. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, something else occurred to me earlier. This whole The theme of today seems to be that you're like, unbeknownst to either of us, you're my most hunter-gatherer friend. Uh, gypsy culture is all about nomadism. It's all about not having roots and and not like uh buying into the dominant culture right they, yeah. they don't recognize borders all sorts of interesting stuff there. What, what 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 struck me the most one of the things that struck me the most is we we take for granted that so much we take commodification so much for granted that we value people's success based on whether they're able to make money off of it right so if somebody is a serious musician, they're a professional musician, and right. they're therefore you know make money from it, and therefore we can say that they must be good. And I remember uh, uh, getting the this CD of these like amazing flamenco family that it was like they were the most no, well known flamenco family in Spain, and and they all worked as butchers. Right. And uh, and the uh, the. Uh, the liner notes had this interview with them saying like why when you could so easily make your living off of this music why are you all still working as butchers and one of them said well only the most desperate person who doesn't know how to do anything else would resort to making money off of their art and therefore bastardize it sell right. it out all turn it this. into work turn it into work turn it into a commodity yeah. and so they have this deep intuition that 
you know the the, the flamenco is better when you don't when you don't do it for a living and and I found that to be true with you know my best films have been ones that I've done out of passion and love and need to do it not out of like projecting some like financial you know and I've been able to make money d doing other things Airbnb or uh, shooting commercials or music videos or anything like that but that's not the good stuff the good yeah. stuff is uh, and um that's an interesting when you put it that way it's so obvious isn't it you know it's like oh you're you're a really good lover why, why don't you become a gigolo right you know like <laughs> that makes no sense right exactly yeah you know, your wife's really hot why don't you pimp her out like yeah excuse me <laughs> there's there's a weird yeah there's a weird alignment there and then there's a, a blurring of the lines between where flamenco takes place like the moment you go as a tourist to spain and see it on a stage 90 percent of it is is lost right the real flamenco doesn't happen as a performance it hey where, what's as the film how can people see that oh, short so, film of yours there's a so there's so two beautiful. There's, there's two films one uh is my first feature film was called flamenco a personal journey and that's on youtube in 10 parts uh and it's become kind of a cult classic in the flamenco world because I was when I was there, I just had my camera as usual, just kind of documenting my everyday life, and it turned into my first movie. And uh, it's it's now kind of become a historic piece because a lot of people who are these legends of, in the flamenco world have since died. And this was like 1998 that I did this, and then um, I made this film called Being in the World, which is about uh, the philosophy of Martin Heidegger and. And the, the practical implications of his philosophy, which most people don't know about because it's a, he's a very kind of difficult, seemingly very abstruse philosopher. But I think that, you know, the most important philosopher of the 20th century, probably, and, and I thought his, his kind of explorations of what it is to be human were worth kind of bringing to a more... Uh, more non-specialized audience right. and so I, I went back and revisited all these my, my professor at Berkeley Bert Dreyfus who was a you know very monumental figure in, in, in bringing Heidegger to an American audience a philosophical audience and, um, and, and all of his students who are now professors uh, and so I, I, I interviewed all of them and then I, I found I wanted to find real world examples of what they're talking about and I, as I'm saying flamenco is a great example of a lot of these ideas of craft and skill and community and the, the relationship to technology and um, and so I went back to Spain and I met this guy named Manuel Molina who is one of the greatest flamenco guitar players and singers and poets that Spain has ever known and he's a very well known it was interesting and an, an aside the way that the, the Spanish deal with celebrity, having been married to a celebrity and seeing how we objectify and commodify that experience. It's how many people just want to say, uh, I need to prove to people that I've met you, so I want a picture with you, or I want your autograph. I need to have something to take away from it. Whereas Manuel Molina, you walk around with him in Spain and everyone just wants to say hi. <laughs> you know, and it was, that's like so refreshing. You know, like they yeah. love him, they know him, but they didn't want anything from him, you yeah. know? And, uh, and and I remember sitting in a cafe with him, and he, he uh, someone asked him if he would play the guitar, and he'd say, "I'll play on one condition: don't shush the people in the room, 
Because, you know, a lot of people uh, will say, yeah. oh, sh- Manuel's playing. This is yeah. serious. And he says, you have to earn people's quietness. You know, mm. like if I play and it naturally goes quiet, right. I'm happy. Right. But not like, don't don't like that bring attention so cool. to it. Yeah. And I love how in, in that, oh, the short piece, it, it's him playing in a restaurant after hours. You know, with the staff and it's yeah, so I just filmed so I filmed him cool. for being in the world, and I spent like a week with him, like and and learned so much. He's such a profound philosopher, you know, without wanting to be or pretending to be, but just his whole uh, attitude towards life is so infused with these ideas that we're talking about. Not only against commodification, but also like uh, 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 allowing one's art to infuse every aspect of one's life, not it, not have it be like compartmentalized into this mm. performance, but actually have it inform uh, how you dress, how you talk, how you uh, everything about him. So I came back and I, I used all the best bits in being in the world, but. Uh, it's wrong to say all the best bits because there were so many good bits and I, I realized like two years later that there was all this footage that was just totally not right to have it just be sitting on one of my hard drives I had to make a separate film out of it so I made this short 20 minute film called Manuel yeah. and uh, it's just a portrait of this flamenco artist and I, I get shivers just thinking about him because I think he's such a profound person that you encounter less and less in these times that the other problem with the modern age is that it levels the differences not only between places and times but people and one of the great Mm. things about that culture is that people are really distinguished from one another while at the same time paradoxically completely embodying their tradition yeah. And I think we have a sense of that if if you know the blues at all. Yeah. Like someone could be you listen to Lightning Hopkins. You only have to listen to three notes to know that it's him. And at the same time, he's a hundred percent blues. He's right. not inventing anything. Right. <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> like it, it, so so how does yeah. that happen? How do you have this complete originality and complete faithfulness to the tradition? And and thinking out loud now, but I think maybe that's what we have to long for in our relationships too, right? Right. You can like you can be within an institution of a couple or uh, yeah. or a family, but within that, hopefully, find something that's completely unique and true to you. Yeah, this is the art of life, right? Yeah. The art of of living. Um, I, I can't leave leave this hanging. Is the guy still in jail? Your your mom's ex? No, no, he got out, and then they separated, and oh, okay. and yeah, once you saw the shit that he had. Like was he extradited done. to the U.S. or to Italy? No, it was to France. Oh, to France. Yeah, it was oh. from another older thing that had happened. And <laughs> it, United States, he just left. Uh, you know, the, his whole our whole situation hanging, and who oh. knows how many other people. Okay. Yeah, man. Um, you, you mentioned you were talking about the different appro- different responses to fame in Spain and the U.S. and all that, and that was something we sort of touched on. I think before we started recording, you know a lot of famous people. I mean, you are a famous person, you know. No, I don't in think some, so. <laughs> well, you've been like on the cover of People magazine or something, haven't you? No, no. I I remember seeing some photos of you and your ex-wife, and you know the red carpet bullshit, and you know, I mean, you're you worked with Oliver Stone on a film, is that yeah, right? That was, I, so yeah. what? It, I, we were talking about. I, I don't know if I ever told you the story about when I I hung out with Peter Gabriel for about fifteen no. minutes. Well. And I think I've told the story on the podcast before, so I'll try not to draw it out. But essentially, I've got this idea, and we talked about this earlier. Uh, 
I've got this idea that that famous people and rich people, I mean really rich and really famous people, their reality is distorted by the gravitational field that's created by their fame or their wealth or their great beauty. I used to hang out with fashion models and some of them, it's like you can just see the way the space-time continuum changes around them, yeah. you know? And so I, I've always felt like one thing that I'm capable of doing, which would be of great value to them possibly, is to just treat them completely normally, to, to not get caught up in that whole thing, right? Because I'm really not motivated by money. I know, like, I'm not going to be fucking fashion models, right? You know, so yeah. I just write it off, you know? Like, I, it's whatever. Um, and... So in some cases, I've got friends who are rich or famous or beautiful or whatever, and we actually have an authentic friendship because they see me as separate in their lives, you know, almost like family. Like this isn't about – this person's not trying to get something from me. But then sometimes I'll meet somebody in that position and I'll, I'll like treat them very normally, and then it just gets weird because they – I don't know why, but I assume – like, I met Peter Gabriel, and we were just chatting, and I happened to know a guy that he went to high school with, and we were talking about that, and then we're talking, and we share a birthday, and so we're just sort of having this normal conversation, and at some point, I sensed that he was getting really <laughs> uncomfortable, and I think it was because I never mentioned his music, and then he, I think he was wondering if I knew who he was, and the irony of this is that I, I think Peter Gabriel's a fucking genius, and he's of probably all living musicians, he's the one I most admire. And, and I, was, I thought I was doing him a favor by not mentioning it, but I think in the end I made him really uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and so I kind of like have fallen into my own trap. So I guess my question to you is, as somebody who knows a lot of famous people and, and so on, is... Um, is my approach fucked up? Should I should I start by saying, you know, acknowledging who they are? I don't think that's an easy <laughs> answer because I think yeah. you're right. I think people. I think it distorts people's uh, view of the world and of themselves, and 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 it's it's very complicated because you know I've also known people of you know who have great wealth and think about that's easier than fame. Fame is kind of elusive and harder to understand, but having tons of money you can imagine that almost everybody you meet you know if they know that about you you're probably right to be paranoid that they probably want something from you and how how genuine is your connection with them when in the back of their minds whether you want to or not if you meet somebody who's a billionaire uh there's no way you can't part of you be thinking like how can i get a piece of that or how can this person help me or you know and that starts to wear on people's souls, yeah. Yeah. right? And I think that that's uh, – uh, <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard the, 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 uh, the fight for income redistribution and the, the, you know, bridging the gap between rich and poor as a way to help the rich. But maybe it occurs to me now that that could be one way to pitch it because – That's in my new book. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. There's a whole section on RAS, uh, rich asshole syndrome. Yeah. And and what I'm arguing is that, yes, it's true that psychopaths can tend to get very wealthy because they're willing to do things that most people aren't willing to do, you know, for that. Um, but it's also true that, as you say, being wealthy is hard because it 
forces you to be suspicious of everything that's happening. You get all sorts of pitches constantly. Not and to mention that just the guilt that comes with it, whether consciously yeah. or unconsciously, you see this self-destructive behavior, especially amongst people who didn't do anything for the wealth. Because right. people who believe in this meritocracy, which I don't think even exists, they seem to have no problem with inherited wealth, right? So I don't understand how people can say like, oh, you know, American way is to you know earn your earn your you know living through hard work, and meanwhile you have people you know, inheriting enough money for 50 generations to live like lavish lifestyles with doing nothing. Yeah, the Walton family or something. Yeah. Yeah. So well, and those I, I people first... self-destruct because they have nothing to strive for. They have a deep sense that they don't deserve what they have. Yeah. And therefore they turn to drugs and, and they have, you know, no ambition or they just turn into – they have to turn cold and hard to, you know, the problems of the world because on the one hand, it's an enormous amount of money. On the other hand, if you really try and start saying, can you solve problems, you can't, right? right. So like – a billion dollars is an enormous amount of money for one person to have, but it's not is nothing if you look at it compared to what a government can do to right. you know fix the situation. Let's say. Yeah, now, I, I first experienced that myself the first time I went to India, and you know I never thought of myself as well. Right, and you start to feel what it's like. Yeah, it's like yeah. fuck my plane ticket. What I spent on the plane ticket could get five families out of debt forever. Yeah, and, but I'm not going to do it. No. Nope. So I have to live with the fact that I'm not going to do it. And even if I wanted to do it, I wouldn't know how to do it. You I know? think about this all the time. Yeah. Well, is it's this, all relative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think in a way, is this what led your father into the life path that he took? You asked me this once, and I always quote you. I think you asked me this on the last podcast. It's like, was he a Marxist? I said, no. What makes you say that? And he said, well, he obviously believed in the redistribution of wealth, <laughs> and he was like doing it in the first person, not just theoretically, like some of these, you know, uh, more, more like you know, people more attached to their. Well, what a better way to in. do it to say like, you know, this system's bullshit. I won. I'm just going to give it all away. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, he didn't really give it away in the sense that we usually think about because it, <laughs> it was wasn't all Jesus. really fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, give it away in a fun way. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, that's. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I imagine if I woke up in that position, I, I might take that route. You know. Yeah. No, and it's this. There's this. Uh, and you're probably better off for it. You know, if you think about it, if you had inherited all that money, where would you be? Absolutely. Not Absolutely. sitting here. And this I, is a great place to be sitting, I'll tell you. Yeah. Who says it's a disaster, as we say? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, anything else? Did, did I, am I cutting you off? No, no. No? Because this seems like a really uh, good, uh, a good place to end it, unless we've got another topic. No, let's uh, let's let's do this again uh, in again another again. couple of years. Yeah, I hope. yeah I'd, this is I'd love to. You're you're one of my favorite guests. And next time we'll get you to play guitar again, and we'll shush everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks, man. He said, "Baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day." For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say.
Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation, running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say? <laughs> When everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.